You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. So if you would stand with me out of reverence for this being God's word, we will first read in 2 Samuel 5. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 5, as after each of these readings, I will say this is the word of the Lord. If you please respond with deep reverence, saying thank you, thanks, let's not switch this up, thanks be to God. (laughs) 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 16. Then all the tribes of Judah came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. They anointed King David over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who came, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him give up the water shaft, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo from from the Millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elisha, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elephelet. This is the word of the Lord. If you wouldn't mind turning with me to Colossians 3, we'll read verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Seated. Let's pray. So Father, we come now to read your word, to hear your word, to understand your word, to believe your word, and to obey your word. So God, may your spirit be at work among us to, to cause us to see and to behold what is true. And then God, help our hearts to believe these things. And then God, may we obey them. In your name we pray, amen. So this is our final week, being that it's Ascension Day, discussing, talking about, considering the centrality of the ascension of Jesus Christ uh, to the Christian faith. I want to draw your attention back to one thing from the very first week. We talked about this, and then we're going to ask the question, how does this work exactly? How, how does it actually begin to bring about um, the kind of fruit that we've been talking about, pointing out over the last few weeks in the Christian life? Um, we, uh, we focused the very first week on the fact of um, the centrality of the, of the ascension of Jesus to the story of Jesus as contained in the gospel accounts of Jesus' own life, highlighting in particular um, in the gospel of Luke, Luke ends his telling of the story of Jesus with the ascension of Jesus and he opens his uh, description of the mission of the church in Acts uh, with the ascension of Jesus. In other words, for Luke, the hinge point on um, the accomplishment of Jesus' own ministry and then moving forward into um, the sheer wonderful and beautiful chaos that unfolds through the church's ministry in the book of Acts, the hinge point or the center point in those two stories it is not simply the cross and not simply the resurrection of Jesus, um, but the cross, the resurrection, and ultimately the ascension of Jesus. Um, the story uh, of the gospel is not simply the story of the cross. Um, we must believe in what God has accomplished for us in the death of Jesus. It, it is essential. And it is essential that we believe and trust in and understand the glorious victory of Jesus in coming physically out of the grave three, de- three days after his crucifixion. The resurrection of Jesus is essential. The crucifixion, the sacrificial atonement of Jesus is essential. And um, confessing and believing that Jesus is Lord and that's not merely kind of an, an ontological confession, not merely um, a statement of some religious idea. It is a confession about where Jesus is now. And it was the central confession of the early church. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess 
that after he rose from the dead, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and was given all authority over heaven and earth. And that story, that, that confession is central to what it means to live as Christians in the world today. In other words, it is not ancillary. It's not um, kind of a, a subsequent interesting story that we find evidence for in the Bible. It is an essential confession component of what we confess as Christians to be true about Jesus. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're a visitor, you've, maybe you've been visiting for a while, maybe you've wandered in this particular Sunday, we as Christians believe that Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross, a sacrificial death in our place. That all of us are guilty before the Father. We're guilty because we've subverted his law. We've subverted um, the way that he's called us to live and be in the world, what he's actually made us to be in the world. And therefore, we're guilty of sin and we're deserving of death and judgment. So we confess and believe in the cross, that Jesus Christ came and he died in our place as a sacrifice. So he died so that we wouldn't have to. Second, that still presents us with the problem of death. We, we confess and believe that Jesus rose from the grave um, as the first fruits, the beginning of the unrolling of death itself. That death itself is being rolled back in the world and for all the people who belong to Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus. And we confess and believe that Jesus then ascended to the Father. And that language of ascension is actually quite, sim- um, quite similar um, to the ascension of a new king to England. Um, the statement of ascension is not merely geographical. It's not merely stating kind of a, um, a statement about elevation, like how high up are you off the ground. It is a statement of authority. It's a statement of office. We believe that Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And the functional word there is all. Not some authority, not religious authority, not spiritual authority, all authority over laws, over economics, over marriage, over sexuality, over our bodies, over our prayers, over all of it. It completely and absolutely belongs to him. And those three things are non-negotiables at the very heart of what Christian faith confesses. All of that, not just part of it. Christianity, Christianity believes in the forgiveness of sins, but not only in the forgiveness of sins. Christianity believes in the defeat of death, and the inauguration of new creation, that God is making all things new, but not only in the fact that God is defeating death and making all things new. And we also believe that Jesus has all authority, that he's Lord, but not only that he's Lord. So we looked at, and we will look at again this week, the precious reality in Revelation 5, When Jesus is then presented to the Father on the back end of the ascension, he stands as the Lion of Judah. And when John looks at the Lion of Judah, he is a slain lamb. 
So the Lord of the universe, the Lord of everything, our Lord and King is always present before the Father, before the judge of all the earth, presenting his blood as the sacrifice for our sins forever. Which is glorious good news. In other words, never will you have to stand on your own merits before the judge of all the earth. Your sins are always covered by Jesus. One of the arguments that we've asserted and have tried to demonstrate from the scriptures is this confession or belief about the ascension of Jesus is a central component for how we do all of life. How um, the, the Christian call to obedience gets worked out in everything. Uh, not just in our spiritual lives, not just in our religious lives, but in all of our relationships. And how it gets worked out, um, it actually works out in our marriages. It works out in how we raise our kids. It works out in our jobs. It works out in our calling to worship with the people of God in the church. And this week I want to go, last week we are in Ephesians. This week we're going to go to Colossians. Um, we're actually going to look a little more closely at how that works. Now, Paul actually spells out for us in the text that we're going to look at, that was read for us in just a minute. He spells out for us that this connection between um, the, the place where Jesus is seated. In other words, his ascension, his authority, the connection between that and the kinds of attitudes that we should have towards one another in the church. He, he draws a connection between where Jesus is seated, the kind of authority he has, and marriage. He draws a connection between the authority of Jesus and work. And he kind of, um, the, the passage that we're looking at is a, a hinge place, a logical, he, he draws out kind of the logical connections necessary for us to understand how this relates to that. In other words, my hope is that by looking at Colossians 3, um, this will again begin to take on more feet in our life as the people of God. In other words, it won't simply be an interesting piece of theology that we like or don't like. I don't know, maybe you don't like the ascension. You should. Um, But instead, it would actually be the grounds on which you get up tomorrow morning and go to work. The grounds by which, husbands, you seek resolution and reconciliation when you and your wife are in an argument. It would be the grounds by which, parents, um, you serve your children and love them and discipline them and instill in them wisdom in how to live. In fact, it would be um, the very grounds of of the wisdom you're trying to give them. So that's the goal. See if we get there. All right. The first thing I want to point out is how much the ascension plays a role in the whole kind of foundational argument for Paul in Colossians. So if you're still in Colossians 3, which you should be, flip back over to Colossians chapter 1. Look with me in verse 3. This is Paul's introduction to his letter. 
He says, we always thank, thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because, because is a wonderful word that appears all over the place in the Bible. And the reason why it's a wonderful word is it shows you with a word the argument that Paul's trying to make. So let me show you how this works. He said, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So he's writing to this church. And he's saying, We just keep giving thanks for you. The reason why we keep giving thanks for you is because we heard that you believe in Jesus. And not only do you believe in Jesus, but you love Jesus' people because. So why do they have faith in Jesus and love all of Jesus' people? Because, see how that works? That's how because works. It's a marvelous little word. I would recommend you highlight it whenever you read your Bible. I always highlight alls and becauses. Because they're wonderful, wonderful little words. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Now, let's do some work on this phrase. The hope laid up for you in heaven. I think for years, I thought about this phrase as like a bank. Like I should love the saints and have faith in Jesus because that's somehow accruing some future, good future for me in heaven. We'll just put a label on it called hope because it's a good future. And so the argument Paul's trying to make here is Trusting in Jesus, loving the saints, because you want to lay up for yourselves hope in heaven. That's not what that means. It was wrong. So if you come in here thinking that, you're wrong. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, okay. So, instead, they have faith in Jesus Christ. Their love for all the saints because of the hope, not a future hope, but the hope now laid up or present or established. It's the word there. Established for you in heaven. In other words, this isn't about accruing something. This isn't about um, some future where you float off in the sky. Um, this is about presently. Presently, there's something going on in heaven. And that something that's going on in heaven is something that grounds our hope now so that we are people marked by hope, not cynicism. Hope now, even as we look at a world that's filled with chaos, that's going to get probably really chaotic here in about two weeks, right out the door. In the middle of all of that, we're a people 
who have hope in something that is true in heaven right now. And the result of that hope is we become the kind of people who have faith in Jesus Christ, we trust in Jesus Christ, and there's a hope that's, that's, that's connected to that. And that hope is Jesus Christ, his office in the heavenlies. That even as chaos spins around us, even as um, it seems like an utter rejection of the rule of God and the goodness of God and the beauty of God just seems to be multiplying everywhere, all around us. We are a people who, because we have faith in Jesus Christ, and because of this hope laid up for us that he even now reigns over all the earth, we can love the saints. Let's go on to the place in chapter 1. Look at verse 18. Actually, I'll start in 15 because this passage just screams to be read in its entirety. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, this is Jesus, by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. I love that. It means the governor's office was created by God and exists for him. There is no secular, sacred divide in the universe. Everything exists. Governor Polis exists. His authority has been given to him in order that he might honor Jesus. President Biden has been given authority. That authority was given to him by God for one purpose, that he might honor Jesus Christ. And if it's true of the highest offices in our land, accountants, you've been given your office, your strange authority over numbers, by Jesus Christ for one purpose. That you might honor Jesus Christ with spreadsheets. What I tried to do there, if you don't know what I did rhetorically, is I tried to take offices that clearly have honor and glory associated with them. So you have one end of the honor spectrum and then discuss another office for which I have zero understanding and find very odd. So everything then is supposed to be included. Teachers, Stay-at-home moms, coffee shop people, engineers. They do stuff with math, but it like makes stuff that's really cool. Like all of the things in between. All of those offices, all of those responsibilities, all of that authority everywhere has been given to you, seating, seated, seated, sitting in this room by Jesus Christ 
for one fundamental purpose. To glorify, to honor, to serve Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. Through him and for him, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. That, that is a strange word we don't use very often, but here's what it means. That he might be first in authority and honor and glory. And notice the progression. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So there you have, you have the death of Jesus. You have the resurrection of Jesus, firstborn of the dead. Why? It ends, that, that, that resurrection then ends somewhere, has a goal. That in everything, he might be preeminent. He might be first in authority and glory and honor. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So ascension is central to understanding who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him. His authority is not an afterthought. It is central and foundational to the Christian confession itself. And it is gloriously good news. And it is, quite frankly, the piece of the good news that our culture, in fact, let's be honest, every culture in rebellion against God that has existed from the foundation of the world has hated Talk about the forgiveness of sins. You might get some pushback on the use of the word sins as if there's anything that needs to be forgiven. But you won't be seen as a problem in our society. Talk about the resurrection from the dead. Talk, Talk about the fact that God is rolling back sickness and death and destruction um, as people see it in the world, you'll get nary a whisper of pushback on that. Everybody sees that things aren't quite as they should be. You might define how they're not quite as they should be differently, um, but everyone hears as good news um, that, that God is merciful, one, and two, that, that God is fixing the world. But three, Start talking about the authority of Jesus over everything. And you'll, be, you'll start being called all sorts of names. Fascist, nationalist, take your pick. The ascension of Jesus, the authority of Jesus over everyone and everything is a central confession of the gospel. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what we love to celebrate, to sing about, we sing about it today, the mercy of God in the cross. If, if you'd have been here on Easter, you'd have seen flowers and a loud 
celebration complete with barbecue and beer. The resurrection of Jesus, that death itself has been defeated and its end is sure. But may you also hear that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. All authority is his. So how does this work? Now flip back over to chapter 3. How does the progression actually work and shape our life? Let's look at the words. Look at the text. If then you have been raised with Christ. It's one of the things we confess at baptism. With Jesus you've been raised. You've been united with Jesus in such a way that his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. Seek the things that are above. I want you to parallel that with what he says here. In verse 2, you see, in verse 1, you see, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Ascension. Next. Seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now what this is not saying is think about theology a lot. What this is not saying is don't think about lunch. Don't think about marriage. Don't think about politics. Don't think about sex. Don't think about all of this other stuff. Instead, think heavenly thoughts everywhere. Just go around thinking heavenly stuff. Just float around, oblivious to reality as it confronts you in the face at five o'clock when you get home from work. Float above it. Just think heavenly things. It's not what this is saying. You know how I know this is not what this is saying? Because in the very next paragraph, he begins to describe how to live in a very earthly world. And as he begins to spell out um, what these things look like in the context of social and economic relationships, starting in verse 18, he starts talking about marriage and sex and work and slavery and being a master of slaves and being a slave of a master and, 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 all, and raising kids. Is there anything more earthy than raising kids? So whatever he means here by seek the things that are above and set your minds on things that are above, what he doesn't mean is doing what he does right after he says all of this, right? We can all agree there. Like Paul's not an idiot. He's not going to say, don't set your mind on things on earth, and then he spends several pages trying to get everyone to set their minds on earth. So whatever that phrase means in chapter 3, it doesn't mean don't think about, don't consider marriage or politics or anger or child rearing or work. What does he mean then? He means, this is my attempt to define it, Um, there are other places in the scriptures I can go to kind of defend this or to show this is exactly what he means 
as other places in Scripture, it's spelled out even more. Don't set your minds on an earthly order, an order that is merely oriented to that which you can see and taste and touch. Instead, set your minds or order your way of thinking or re-understand everything else in your life in the light of where Jesus is seated. In other words, understand everything in your life, not in terms of merely what you see going on around you, but regardless of what you see going on around you, reorient every single part of your life. How you discipline your kids, um, how you think about your job on Monday, the kind of work you choose to do. Reorient and rethink all of it through one fundamental lens. Where is Jesus seated? Because if you orient and define your marriage in terms of the authority of Jesus, your marriage will be different. How you perceive right and wrong and the kinds of actions you should take in your marriage, how you'll think about talking to one another, the tone that you'll take in talking to one another will be different when you have always before your mind, ordering your way of thinking, ordering your way of understanding and interpreting reality, the fact, the confession, that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. So setting the mind or seeking the things above is orienting all of this earthly life towards its heavenly end, and its heavenly ground. Ground being that which it grows out of, and end being the purpose of all of it. So going all the way back to the authority of Jesus over, that he's created these offices, he's created roles, he's created everything for him, to honor him, to serve him, That means rethinking, re-understanding, reorienting, redefining everything in your life, even the word success, success in your job, redefining the nature of good. What is a good marriage? Good marriage is one that acknowledges and seeks to honor Jesus seated on the throne, ruling over heaven and earth. What is success in your job? It's not the next promotion. It's not the next raise. It's not um, merely being fruitful in your work and whatever endeavor you set out to do. It is a job defined primarily by a job that seeks to serve God. As, as he's actually going to say in this book, do your work as unto the Lord. So you can't lie. You can't cheat. You can't steal. You shouldn't show up late. You can't just work and step on people to get to the next promotion. You can't neglect your responsibilities to your family for the sake of work. And you shouldn't use your family as an excuse to neglect the work you're called to do. 
Because the measuring rod is not what anyone around you says it is. It's not um, whatever your boss says it is. It's not whatever your wife or your husband says it is. It is Jesus Christ and his authority as the one seated at the right hand of the Father. He goes on then to describe two motions. And we're almost completely out of time. And I should have timed this better. The two motions is to put to death certain things and to put on certain things. What's interesting about that motion is it tells us something about the nature of reality in our world. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is earthliness? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And that word passion doesn't just mean passion. Um, it, it literally is a, it's a, it's a sexual term. In fact, what's interesting is all four of these first four words are, um, have sexual connotations in the original language. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, One observation to make from this is that we generally think of sin, or particularly sexual sin, uh, to be something that grows out from worshiping the wrong God. It grows out from idolatry. Paul pretty consistently argues the other direction. Idolatry, or refusing to worship God, is generally born out of sexual desire. Which is just an interesting flip. Um, I think I've told this story in here a number of times. Um, It's a story now I've heard from multiple pastors and have experienced myself. Um, When you talk to someone, maybe they go off to college for their first year, um, or you haven't talked to them a while, and you sit down with them, and suddenly they have all kinds of questions about God. They don't know if he's real anymore. They don't know if if they believe in him anymore. Um, and uh, one pastor, he said it got to the point where kids would go off to college, they'd come back questioning their faith, and he would just like to cut through all of it. Rather than answering all of their apologetic questions, he would just say, who are you sleeping with and how long has it been? Because all of the questions, the shift in worship was born out of a desire to satisfy their own sexual desires. So the very first thing that happens when you understand the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus in the ascension is you begin to put to death mere sexual desires, things um, that, that, that fuel your own lusts. Um, and, and, include, and it's interesting, he puts side by side sexual desire on the one hand and covetousness, um, that you see what other people have and you're driven and defined by the need to have what they have. That it seems like two of the most powerful forces for evil in this world, two of the biggest threats to your soul in existence is sexual desire and covetousness. And so at the root of what belief in the resurrection of Jesus does is that in the first place is it put the, puts these things to death and in doing so it kills idolatry in the soul. And so those of you in this room who are playing around with porn, it is not an innocent sin. This explains how it is 
a danger to your very soul. I'm playing with sexual immorality in all of its forms has the power, and it's crazy, it has the power to erode your very faith in Jesus. In other words, you'll begin to say crazy, untrue things about Jesus that right now you would never say in a million years, um, but give it time, and the thing it will do like an acid is eat at the very foundations faith and worship of Jesus. Why do you think in our culture sexual perversity is rampant and that people are spending billions and billions of dollars to put naked people and sexuality in front of you everywhere? It's not because they love sex, it's because they hate God. And the trick is if I can awaken in you the desire to satisfy lust, to satisfy passion, to pursue sexual immorality in its myriad of forms, the result will be you will not worship God anymore. And so because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, put to death, All sexual immorality, all lust, and all covetous desires. But put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion. That you move towards those in need. You move towards those in all kinds of states to seek their good. Kindness. You're not mean. Not as the world defines it, but as God does. Humility. Humility means an absolute submission to real, true, objective authority. Namely, Jesus and His Word, meekness, strength that is constrained, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So trusting in the ascension of Jesus, confessing and believing that he is Lord of heaven and earth and is seated now at the right hand of the Father. And that, that fact is our hope. Put to death all in you that is merely earthly. And put on with, with zeal, because you can, because you trust in the fact that Jesus is Lord and believing that he's Lord, believing that he reigns, even now frees you as one who is beloved and holy to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble, to be meek, to be patient, to bear with people in this room who irritate you. And to forgive, knowing that standing before the throne of God is the blood that purchased your forgiveness forever and ever and ever. Let's pray and prepare for communion. So Father, on this Ascension Day, this day of remembering and celebrating 
the ascension of Jesus to his throne, to his rightful office. God, may as we, as we partake of bread and wine, remember and believe and have our minds set on things above, reoriented to the glorious reality of his reign. And God, may that then free us and empower us and strengthen us. As Paul prays in chapter one, um, to put to death all that is in us that is merely earthly and to set our minds and our whole way of thinking according to the reign of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the office of Jesus, and therefore put on love. In your name we pray, amen.